0: Hello my friends, this is Mark Gladman, also known as Brother Frederick James, your friendly neighborhood Monk in docks, and this is, oh my gosh, episode 4 of Monk on the Mic, the Monk in Docs podcast. I have been so overwhelmed with the messages that you have sent in relation to the last three episodes, and it was kind of a weird time to start a podcast, uh, being just before Christmas and then right before New Year and now Episode 4 and we're just after New Year. But I think that it kind of found its way in ways that I, I think, based on the message I've received from you anyway, uh, that it's really touched your hearts. And and I'm really appreciative of that. I, I really, as I said, I think last episode, I really did want to create something that that did something for you and with you and inspired you and encouraged you, but in ways that made you realize that you don't have to produce. Uh, You simply have to be awakened to what is and to everything that you are already, everything that you've been created to be, that you are already. And uh, particularly the last two episodes, the um, Christmas episode and the episode leading into New Year, Looking for the Christ in Christmas and Shaking Off the Dust, seems to be a a resonating message that has come through that. So thank you so much for your messages. Please do drop me a direct message. Send me an email at munkindocs at gmail.com. However you think you might like to uh, communicate with me, uh, send me a comment on a post at Instagram, at munkindocs is my handle there. Same on uh, Facebook and Twitter. Um, Not that I go to Twitter all that much anymore, but... Send me notes, send me messages, tell me what you're liking, tell me what you're not liking, tell me what's happening for you. I am sincerely interested in what's going on for you and your life. I get uh, DMs all the time on in Instagram from people asking me to pray for them, telling me on where things are at, asking me questions. Uh, and I'm I'm very happy to receive those. And I'm very honestly interested in supporting you and helping you, even if that's just by sending you a note to saying, dang, you're right keep the path, keep going, you're doing fantastic. If you need to hear that from someone, send me a note, I'm happy to tell you that um, and encourage you and be there for you. So thank you for those messages and I'm sincerely glad that this podcast is hitting the mark for you and I hope it continues to do so, which is also why you should contact me. Is there something you want me to cover? Someone you want me to talk to or interview? We've got some really cool people we're going to interview in the next little while and for those of you who contacted me, about the episode Shaking Off the Dust, I am planning to do an interview with Dr. Patrick Oliver and that's going to be amazing, so stay tuned for that in the year to come. So today I want to talk to you about fish and I want to talk to you particularly about following fish and I want to talk to you about following fish in the context of what is probably my favorite story in all of the Gospels. And that is John chapter 21. Now, John is my favorite gospel. It's a very mystic gospel. There is so much depth to it. I've mentioned this before. We'll be doing some studies on it, um, possibly here on the podcast, but definitely in the table app, uh, which, by the way, is um, coming very shortly. So hold on to the announcement for that. I'm getting some work done finally now that I'm no longer sick. Christmas slowed things down a little bit, but it is, it is going to be there in the next week or so. So just hold on to that. Uh, So Matthew 21, uh, sorry, John 21, my favorite gospel and my favorite story. So let me read to you the story first and then let's talk about where we're going with this. Uh, It says, I'm going to start from verse one of uh, John 21. Afterward, this is obviously after the resurrection. Okay, Uh, John writes, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way, Simon Peter Thomas, called Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus he called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Mm -hmm. Then, at that point, Mm -hmm. then, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. And the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire burning of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have caught. And Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, I love this story. And here's why. You've heard me talking a little bit, or you might have seen me mention in some of my poster articles about this thing that our Jewish um, friends have as part of their tradition, which is called Midrash. Midrash in its very simplistic form, it's a lot more deeper than this, but in its very simplest form, Midrash was uh, a collection of stories that um, the rabbis would create as backstories to the text of Scripture. And they would use those as teaching tools. Now, they weren't formally Scripture itself, and while the teaching of uh, the teaching that's found within Midrash wouldn't be seen, Midrash itself wouldn't be seen as scripture per se, it was used uh, to teach around the stories. Um, again, very simplistic, and it's not necessarily speaking directly to this, but uh, there's a great analogy that a rabbi, and I can't remember the rabbi's name. I did a post about it a couple, uh, about a year ago now, where a, a rabbi spoke about the Torah being written with black fire on white fire. And the idea behind that is understanding that while we have the black ink of text that we read, the black fire, we also have white fire. What is the white fire? Well, the white fire is the space within the letters. It's the space between the letters. It's the space between the words. It's the white space between the lines it's the space in the margins and the top and the bottom what is the white fire the white fire is the wisdom and so on that comes from looking behind the black fire right and so midrash sort of fits in that sort of white fire sort of zone which and I i did this as part of a degree a little while ago, I, I went actually quite in depth on it, and Nellie did this as a dissertation. Uh, but I and, I, and I may still do it, it interests me greatly that many of the early Christian communities, I think, may have continued this tradition of creating stories behind the stories to help them live out the scripture itself. So, for instance, and this isn't my own uh, thesis. This comes from an Australian theologian by the name of Mark Cadwallader, who greatly informed the papers that I wrote um, on this idea. And, and the idea was, came from the ending of Mark's Gospel. So I was, I was writing a paper about the end of Mark's Gospel. And you're probably aware that Mark's Gospel has multiple endings. Uh, technically, it finishes at Mark chapter 16, verse 9. Um, And everything that comes after that, there are a number of variations of how the gospel goes from there um, and a number of places where it stops. Um, And Mark Cadwallader's theory on this is that little communities of Christians, when they had access to Mark's gospel, which being the first gospel written, would have been relatively early on. When you finish the gospel at Mark chapter 16, verse 9, Basically, and I i haven't got this Mark because so I didn't think I was going to go here, um, but let me very, very quickly turn here and I'll read you exactly how Mark's gospel um, finishes in, in Mark chapter 16, verse, uh, sorry, verse 8 is the ending. Verse 9 is the start of the next section. Uh, Trembling and bewildered the women, that is uh, Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary the mother of James and Salome. Uh, Trembling and bewildered the women went out and fled from the tomb, they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, what's interesting is Jesus has just said, um, or the angel has just said to them, that they are to go and tell Peter that Jesus is going ahead into Galilee and there you will see him just as he told you. But then, you know, verse 8 says that they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, obviously, they said something to someone eventually. Uh, And so Mark 16 verses 9 to 20, that's in most of the Bibles that would be available today, which starts with earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have this portion. Goes on to say how the women um, eventually went and told um, the disciples and, and all the other things that come about because of that. But there are other stories as well. Um, that that have been found, which are alternate endings to Mark's gospel. And Cadwallader's theory is that each community wrote those as they responded. When they asked the question, well, if we were those women and this angel had said to us, go ahead and what would we do? How would we do that? And the stories that have been written are stories that I guess express how they would have gone with this. Right. And so that's the essence of what Midrash kind of is, that Um, And look, if you take that, you know, please don't hear me saying that the endings of Mark's gospel, all of them authoritative or whatever. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we have a bucket load of them. How do we explain that? And I think Cadwallader's theory, again, it's not mine, it's his, um, is absolutely brilliant to consider that different communities came up with responses that were based on how they thought they had to live out the story of Jesus in their own communities. Okay, so that's kind of what Midrash is, these backstories. And when I read the story in John 21, I get this backstory idea in my head about what happened at this point. Now, before I talk about what I think happened for Peter at this uh, at this point, just between the throw your net to the right side and John saying it's the Lord. Uh, I want to talk to you. I want to go from the ocean and I want to go to a mountain for a minute. In this new place that I now live, in this little uh, country town where I am now here full time after six months of being here for weekends and going you know, two and a half hours back to the coast uh, to finish the year out at the school, that's no longer happening and I'm here full time. And one of the things that my wife and I are doing together um, is we're going to, as often as we can, climb the small mountain that's behind our little community here up to the lookout. And so for the last couple of days, we've been doing that. We've been walking up this little mountain behind our home to the lookout and looking out, and then coming back down. About six k's return. It's a nice little morning walk, and we talk and it's it's a, it's a, and reflect, and it's lovely. But today, as we're climbing up the mountain, I turned around, and when I say mountain, it's it's not super steep. The, the driveway to the car park is probably steeper than the, the hike on the trail up to the mountain itself. So um, <laughs> it's, it's kind of bizarre when I say climbing a mountain. but It's it's not steep. It's just a nice gradient trail. But at one point, uh, I stopped and turned around to see where, where my wife was behind me. And she had stopped. And she had this smile on her face. And she was just looking out from the trail at the view where we were at. Now, at this point, we're only about one third of the way up the hill, up the mountain. And she was looking at things and she noticed these flowers and she stood there and she looked at them for a bit. Um, And I think then she noticed a butterfly on a little tree beside her and she watched it for a little bit. And then she took a photo and then she stood up and she looked again at the view. And then she turned around, looked at me and smiled and kept walking. Since I would. And I watched her doing this. And as she started walking, I turned around and started to continue walking too. And as I did that, I noticed a few things going on for me. Now, I come from a trail running background and I still run a lot and I have had some time off and I'm building again, so I haven't run for a while. But I know that when I run there are a couple of things that are true that came to my mind as I started to walk again, just watching what happened for my wife just then. When I'm climbing a hill, and I noticed I did this as I was walking as well, as I'm climbing the hill, and I don't know about you, but for me, I generally look one of two places. I either look at the trail, just a few steps in front of me, starting to think about where I'm going to put my feet. And when you're running probably a smart place to look when you're walking, maybe not as big a deal, but that's where my eyes sort of generally hit and probably out of the habit of, you know, nearly it is 10 years now of of running trails and stuff. Either that or I'm looking up the hill, up the mountain, not up the trail, but up to the mountain to where the end point is, where I think the end point is. And if I'm not looking up the mountain because I don't know where the end point is, I am looking along the trail, but I'm looking right to the end of it, to the point where it disappears, thinking, I've got to get to that point. And so in these two places where I'm looking, the first kind of represents the next step. And so walking up the trail, my eyes are looking at the trail, just a few feet in front of me, and I'm thinking in my head, where am I going to step when I'm going to get there? So I'm thinking about the next steps. Of making it up this mountain or I'm either looking at the end point of the mountain or the end point as far as I can see of the trail thinking that's where I need to get to. So my eyes as I'm climbing this mountain are either looking at the end game or they're looking at what I have to do next. Now, this isn't necessarily completely bad. Like I said, looking where you need to step next is probably smart. Keeping your eyes at the point where you need to get to can often be a motivator to help you get there. But I also noticed something because I walked a few more steps as I was thinking about this and I got a little bit ahead of my wife, so I stopped to wait for her. And when I did, I noticed that stopping to look around it really does open your eyes to a number of things. The first thing I noticed as I, when I started to look around was I was looking down the side of the mountain, down towards where we had come from, where our house is. Then I sort of turned around, followed the you know the view around uh, towards the trail that I'd just walked up, so that the where the trail was coming up from. And I had a good look, a good view of where it is that we had um, just walked to get to this point and what we just walked through to get to this point. And in my mind, I started to think about how this, where i had come from and the trail that I had walked to get to this point, how both things, these two things brought to my mind how I'd got to where I am and how far I'd come already, even though I was only now probably halfway up the the, the mountain. And then I looked up again and I noticed that even from this point, I am not at the top, I'm not at the summit, I haven't reached my goal yet, but I'm looking around and I'm thinking... There is still a beautiful view right here, right now that I can enjoy. So these are the lessons that I learned this morning as I was walking the trail. And as I'm thinking about that, I then started to think about this story in John 21. Now, let's go back to the story. Hold these thoughts about the trail in your head for a moment. And let's go back to this story in John chapter 21. Peter is despondent. He is down. He's disgruntled. He's dismayed. He's possibly even depressed. He's probably worried, concerned, fearful even of what's going to happen now. And so he's standing around with all these people that are listed. And Peter says, verse three, I'm going fishing. Now, this sounds like a really uh, slap across the face with a wet fish um, uh, kind of comment, some sort of weird left field comment to make in in the midst of all this stuff that's gone on. um, If we follow John's narrative, they've just experienced the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus. Um, They're sitting around going, what's going on? There has been a revelation of Jesus to at least some of the disciples who aren't named at that point. Uh, Jesus has appeared to Thomas. And then they're sitting around going, what's going on? And Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. Now, why do he say he's going to go fishing? Now, I imagine it's because Peter was a fisherman. Peter caught fish. That was his trade before he began following Jesus. And I imagine that in his mind, he's thinking, I don't know what else to do. Now, some people believe that Jesus, uh, Peter said this because he felt that they needed food. Probably so. Although I imagine that the women who had been supporting the movement to this point probably didn't just pull their money in one point. So, but, but maybe They were hungry. Maybe they needed to make some money and they were going to sell the fish. Or maybe they just didn't know what else to do. And Peter said, what do I know to do? I know how to fish. At least that will give me some space to sit and think and contemplate and go over in my mind what the next step is, what's going to happen, what are we going to do? Whatever the case, he goes fishing. He puts his hand to something. In the midst of his despondency and weirdness, in where they are going to go now on this journey that looks like it's it's ruined. Remember, they were expecting this this messiah and and this uh, you know big thing to happen, and it didn't happen the way that they expected it to. Uh, which is why some people believe, you know, Judas betrayed Jesus, that he was trying to bring about what he thought Jesus was talking about quicker that if he got Jesus arrested, Jesus would have to do the whole overthrow of the government thing early. But it didn't happen that way. And So you've got a lot of confused fishermen walking around going, uh, what is happening? What's going on? And so they're going out and they go fishing. And there's this dude standing on the side of the uh, lake or wherever they are. Um, first thing in the morning after they'd been out there all night, hadn't caught a thing. Even rubs it, well, doesn't rub it in a little bit, but throws the question out, friends, have you any fish? Maybe they thought it was some guy who wanted to buy some fish once they were ready. Whatever it is, they do not recognize that it is Jesus. And when they say no, this stranger to them on the side of the water says, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Now, this is where my little midrash kicks in. Peter hears this. He sees this guy and says, do you have any fish? And he says, uh, no. He said, well, we'll throw your net on the other side and maybe you'll get some. And so as they're doing it, and they're throwing the net in. You can probably hear Peter saying, who does this guy think he is? But, but why does that sound so familiar? Why do I feel like I've heard something like this before? And then they get such a large catch of fish, they can't haul the net into the boat. Because if they did, they would capsize and sink the boat. Which is why they rowed it back and then pulled the net in. Oh, but there's all these fish suddenly caught in a net. And I imagine that Peter has this series of flashbacks where he follows the fish And I imagine it probably started when he remembers a time not long before that particular event where they are on their way to the temple. And when they arrived, the collectors asked for the temple tax. And the collector said to Peter, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? And Peter replies, well, yep, they do. Um, And so he goes to get the money from Peter, uh, from, from Jesus, and they don't have it. And there's a little bit of a teaching thing that happens there. But then Jesus says this to Peter. and This is in Matthew 17. He says, but that we may not offend them, go to the lake, throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth and you'll find a four drachma coin, take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Now, there's a whole bunch of other stuff we can talk about in this teaching, but what I want you to note is the fish. Peter has this flashback to this. I remember that day when Jesus told me to go catch a fish and I pulled a coin out of its mouth to go and pay the temple tax. I remember that. And then from there, I imagine that his mind skips back a little bit more to a point when Jesus has all these people who've come out to watch him teach. And he says to the disciples, I've got compassion on these people. They've been out here three days. They've got nothing to eat. This is in Mark chapter eight, by the way, and some other places too. Uh, If I send them hungry, they'll collapse on the way home because at some distance... And all the disciples are like, but where do we get them enough bread to eat out here? We're in the middle of nowhere. And Jesus says, well, how many loaves have you got? And they say seven. So he tells all the crowd to sit down and then he takes the seven loaves, gives thanks, breaks them, sets them before the people. Verse seven. They had a few small fish as well. And he gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them, and the people ate and were satisfied. And I imagine that that would have equally triggered the time. And there was four thousand people there that day. Seven loaves, a couple of fish, and then a little bit before that, we see this this story where Jesus is teaching and looking after the people, and. There's a great crowd coming out and he says to Philip, where are we going to get bread for these people? And he said, (laughs) John says, this is in John chapter six, by the way, and Philip says, eight months wages would not buy enough bread for each person to have a bite. And another of his disciples, um, Andrew and Peter, Peter, oh, this was Peter's brother, uh, Andrew speaks up and says there's a boy with a small a five small barley loaves and two small fish but how far will they go with so many and jesus says have everyone sit down and of course he gives thanks for the food they distribute it all and not only do they feed everyone with enough but they also gather up gather up basketfuls of leftovers and so i can imagine peter having these flashbacks The temple tax, I had a fish pulled a coin out of its mouth. That's right. Jesus fed 4,000 people and then fed 5,000 people with uh, uh, loaves and a couple of fish. And then I imagine him jumping back a little bit more where there's this teaching that Jesus gave them in one of his parables where he says in Matthew 13, verse 47, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. And when it was full, the fishermen pulled it up to the shore and they sat down and collected the fish in baskets. And I can imagine him thinking, yeah, that's right. Jesus taught about fish and how our work was going to be like fishing. In fact, his mind would have skipped back a bit more, I imagine. Where in Matthew chapter 11, he is speaking to uh, the disciples and a crowd after they were talking about John the Baptist. And he says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And in Peter's mind, I can imagine I can remember Jesus sitting with these people, eating bread and fish and and fellowshipping with people who in our minds should have not have been fellowshipping with. And yet Jesus was very welcoming and embraced them all. And everybody got cranky with him because of that. And then I imagine finally that there is a point where the final flashback happens. And Peter remembers the story from that we read in Luke chapter 5. And I'll read it to you so you can hear the similarities here. And this would have been the one that triggered things for him. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, with the cr- people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonged to Simon, and he put him out a little to the shore, and then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. When Simon saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees, fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And then Jesus says to Simon, Don't be afraid, from now on you will catch people. You will be a fisher of people. See the similarities in that story? And the story in, in John 21 put the net on the other side, big collection of fish. And I imagine that having all these flashbacks, that he's followed the fish going back in this story of the last three years of his life, he ends up coming to this point where this story about how he met Jesus is almost identical to the one that he's in now. Jesus telling them to put the net on the other side, miraculous catch of fish. And suddenly, just as his brain's about to go, John says, it's the Lord. And that's enough for Peter. In his mind, he's got it. John's comment triggers it. And Peter immediately um, wraps his garment around him and then jumps into the water and heads in. And when he gets to the beach, and this is what's beautiful after all those images have helped him understand where he's come from notice the similarities between this and the climb up the mountain now he's had a look at the view he's had a look at where he's come from he's seen the path that he's taken where the fish has played a key character role in each of those events and he's been able to see how far he's come he's been able to see and be reminded of what it was all about Why he started following Jesus right at the beginning. Come, Simon, you will be a fisher of people. It's time to go. And there's another whole story in that, too, about Jesus choosing fishermen. Why would Jesus choose these fishermen? Um, Which is a great story. In short, basically, it's saying you might have not been the smartest, you know, crayon in the box. Sharpest crayon in the box? What's the saying? Anyway, the sharpest knife in the drawer. When it came to all of your learning in school, when you were learning, you know, in rabbinical school and and learning how to read and, and understand the Torah and all the rest of it, you might not have had the stuff there that a rabbi said to you, hey, follow me. But you know what? I'm saying to you, follow me. Why? Because I can see who you are and I can see what you've got. And I want you to know that I want you. You might not have been the smartest person in rabbinical school and in Torah lessons and whatever else, but you are going to be someone that I want to follow me. That's another story. We'll get, maybe get to that another time. But all this identity Peter suddenly has back, all those images he's seen have reminded him who he is. All those stories have brought him to a place where he can see who it is on the beach and he can see where he is right now. How did I get to where I am? He was thinking at the start of this story in John 21. Now we can see how he got to where he is because one day somebody said to him, put your nets on the other side. And he was so bewildered by that that in that moment he said, what do you want from me? And Jesus said, follow me and come and be a fisher of people. And he can see how far he's come. And then the most beautiful thing that I think is in the whole of Scripture. Jesus says when they eventually uh, get the boat to shore, he says to Simon, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. And note that they've already seen that there is coals and there are fish cooking already and some bread. So Jesus has already started making breakfast. And then he says, bring some of the fish you've caught. Contribute. Participate with me. You have come all this way. Not to be bewildered and lost. I want you to see we're still connected. Come and sit and eat with me. Come and have breakfast. Bring some of what you have caught and sit with me. Bring some of what you have caught. Literally, yes, but figuratively think about that. Think about what Peter has caught from Jesus over the past three years. Think about what Peter has learned, his experiences, how they've shaped him and formed him, the things that he realized he's capable of as he's walked with Jesus. Jesus says, now come and bring what you've caught and sit with me and eat a meal together with me. Come and have Breakfast. remember, eating with someone was huge. This is the same Peter who had already denied Jesus three times while he watched Jesus being tried. And Jesus says, I want to eat with you, which is huge. Why? Because you don't eat with people that you don't like. You don't eat with people they don't want to associate with. You don't eat with people who aren't on the same level as you or that you don't want on the same level as you. Again, that's a whole other teaching. We could talk about it sometime. But what Jesus is doing here, the the restoration of Peter doesn't start with that whole do you love me stuff that comes just after this. The restoration of Peter begins with bring what you've caught. Bring some of the fish and participate with me and break bread and fish with me. Let's eat breakfast together verse 13 Jesus came took the bread gave it to them did the same with the fish whoa and that my friends is the power of following the fish just one little trigger that caused Peter not to just be despondent And be looking at or trying to find the summit. He'd lost sight of the summit and he'd lost sight of the end of the path. He didn't know what to do except go fishing. And yet this event happens, which causes Peter to have to stop. That causes him to have a really good look at where he had come from. A really good look at the way he had come to get to that point and in this encounter with Jesus on the beach afterwards, he gets taken to this place where he realizes who he is and how this three-year journey, what how this has made him who he is. And then he's able to see that despite the fact that even for a moment, and maybe still at this point still has, lost sight of what the goal was, where the end of the trail was, what the end game was supposed to be he's able to look around and see you know what I don't need to be despondent because right now right now is still a beautiful view that I can enjoy that is the power of following the fish now there's more to this story And I want to talk about this at another time because there are some interesting things here that are really important that we understand from verse 15 to the end of of John's gospel, particularly in that question of Jesus, to Peter, do you love me? Jesus says, you know that I love you. Peter says, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, well, feed my sheep. And that happens three times. When you read it in the Greek, it doesn't read like the English. We read, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, I love you. I love you. you. I love you. But there's different words being used for love each time. And when you see it in that light, it changes everything. So we will look at this another time. But right now, I want you to think about the lessons that I learned from my wife on the mountain this morning. And I want you to think about this story of Peter, who in following the fish and these events where the fish featured through the last three years of his life, bring him back to this place where he knows where he is, whose he is, what he's about, can celebrate the fact that despite the point that they haven't reached the summit or even the end of this part of the trail, they can celebrate that it looks absolutely beautiful where they are right now. And so, my friend, as we enter 2023, as we start this new year off, I wonder, how are you feeling about the year to come? It's possible that you've set yourself some goals and there's nothing wrong with that. But I'd really encourage you not to focus on the end game and not even to focus necessarily on the step that's coming up, although it's always good to know where you're going to place your foot. But I wonder, at the very least, As you walk through this year, if you're feeling like you're becoming despondent, a bit lost, a little bit frazzled, frustrated, maybe you're not sure the direction. Where am I supposed to be? Am I up to where I'm supposed to be on the way? Where am I on the way? I've got no idea. Maybe there's some things that the mountain and following the fish can help you to do. Maybe the first thing you need to do is just acknowledge where you are, wherever that is. Maybe because your eyes have been consistently on the end goal or the end of the trail or the next step, you haven't acknowledged where you are now. And maybe, maybe what you need to do from that point, even if just for a short period of time, is stop and have a look down the path that you've come up And seen the story that you've just walked along. And see the fish. All the little events that have been a shaping point in what have made you who you are now. And identify them. And to see them for what they are. There will be good stuff. There will be bad stuff in there. Be careful because some of those things may be triggering for you. And we... You need to be careful how you deal with that, absolutely. But look at how you've come through those tre- those points, where you've seen um, yourself grow and climb, and don't just see you know the things that have happened, where those you know the fish has been, whatever your fish is figuratively. Think of also the things you've come through as you followed the fish. And then see where you started from as you followed the fish backwards like Peter and you see where it all began. You see where it started and you're reminded of why you're on this journey in the first place. You're reminded of uh, how far you have come. And even if that's a short way, it doesn't matter. You're further on than where you were when you started. And you can see the person you were when you started. And you can see where you were at when you started. You can see what you had when you started. You can see whatever it was that you had been moving on from or moving towards from where you were. But celebrate that. Be reminded that where you have come from and the journey you have taken that following the fish back has reminded you of has made you who you are today and you can be proud of that and you can celebrate that because right here, right now is the point at which Jesus says to you, bring some of the fish that you've caught, bring some of what you've caught along the way and then sit down with me and let's eat breakfast together. Come and show me how you've grown. And then let's sit down and let me remind you that even though you haven't reached this pinnacle, this height, this end game yet, you're still worthy to eat with. Why? Because you're you. It's not about you getting to the goal that makes you worthy of who you're supposed to be. It's just the very fact that you're you. And I'm going to sit with you right now and we're going to stop right here, on this trail, beside this lake, next to this fire, wherever it happens to be, and stop and come and have breakfast. And be reminded of who you are. And then, before you move on, as you sit there eating breakfast with Jesus, being reminded of who you are in Christ... Look out and see that even from here, the view is beautiful. You don't know what the view is going to look like when you get to the top. But look around and see what the view looks like from here. And enjoy it. And celebrate it. And embrace it. And allow it. let it bring you joy that you've got to this place where you can look around and see this view. And celebrate in that. Ah, my friend, and then ask yourself this question, but only at this point, ask yourself this question. Where is the fish going to go next? And when it does, just like Peter did, I mean, he had to trail, trail the trail backwards. But if he follows it forward, he literally followed the fish right through to where he was. So the question Peter would be asking now and the question you could be asking now is, well, I need to keep my eyes open for the fish. Where is the fish taking me next? Where is this fish leading me? And how do I make sure I keep my eyes on that fish? Because I know that when I follow that fish, somehow, every step of the way, Jesus is going to be there. And of course, this is not something that you'll just do once. There'll be lots of times as you continue on your journey that you're going to have to stop. And follow the fish backwards, see where you've come from. Do exactly the thing we've talked about here. But know this, my friend. I get that we can get discouraged and despondent and be in despair and lost and not know where we're going and not sure why we've come this way. But if you take the time to stop and take the time to breathe in, breathe out, (laughs) to follow the fish and to see all these things. I tell you what, when you look up to look at the view like I did on the mountain this morning, yeah, it's not at the very top. But I tell you what, there are some beautiful spots on the way up that I think I need to stop in a little bit more because they're just as, if not possibly even more so, beautiful from those places that aren't the end game, but they're there because they're part of the journey. I'll leave you with this. We have a little saying in motorcycle world. I I ride motorcycles. I've been riding. I had my bike license before my car license. And I remember one of my good friends, Warwick Milne, telling me this one day. He said, Mark, the reason we ride motorcycles is because getting there isn't half the fun. It's all the fun. And I think that is an incredibly spiritual statement to make. Because it's, the spiritual journey is not about making it. The spiritual journey is how we are formed and shaped and grown and stretched and are awakened more and more and more into the image of who God is and what the world around us has for us. That's the spiritual journey. Getting there isn't half the fun. Taking the journey... It's all the fun, just like Israel in the desert. Like I said last week, it's not the travel. It's the transformation along the way. And my friend, as you stop on the path, as you follow the fish backwards, see where you've come from, as you celebrate how far you've come and what you are and how you've been made to be who you are today. And as you sit up and look out at the beautiful view and celebrate the fact that you're higher than where you were when you began. May grace, peace, love, and hope buoy you and be with you every step of the way. And most of all, enjoy your breakfast with Jesus. That's it for today, my friends. Peace and love to you. We'll see you in the next episode of Monk on the Mic. Bye for now.